our hope in inheriting the promises is founded on God's faithfulness to ensure that we persevere. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that indeed as we are trying to hold on to you with all of our might, yet you hold fast to us and you hold us and you care for us, you love us, you surround us, and you will ensure that we persevere. Remind us of this foundational lesson that we find here in Hebrews 5.11 through chapter 6, verse 12, that we might be encouraged today that indeed we persevere because you are persevering us. Bless the preacher as well as the hearer, that your word might be proclaimed and imparted to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So turn in, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. We'll read through verse 12 of chapter 6. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you, are, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. On May 12, 1997, a record was set by Australian long-distance swimmer Susie Moroni. She became the first woman to swim from Cuba to Florida. 
110 miles in 24 hours and 31 minutes. In 2009, she was interviewed, and she said that one of the keys to success in life, including the key to her record-setting swim, is perseverance. Similarly, Hebrews teaches perseverance is not only a key, it's essential to faithfully living the Christian life and reaching that shore where we inherit the promises. Hebrews is written, as we've been saying, to Jewish Christians who were facing severe persecution for their faith. They were being pressured to forsake Christ, abandon Christ, to apostatize. And the writer of Hebrews has been encouraging them to hold fast in Christ. And the author has encouraged them by showing that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament scriptures, to the angels, to Moses, to Joshua, and even to the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. Last week we focused on Jesus being fully qualified and even surpassing the qualifications for being a high priest. You may remember his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. But in chapter 5, verse 11, the author pauses. He just abruptly stops his teaching on Jesus and Melchizedek. And why does he do that? Because he understands the readers of his letter, that they have a pressing problem. They are spiritually immature and simply could not handle the teaching of the deep things of God, in particular, Jesus' priesthood after, after the order of Melchizedek. So in our text today, we find the author sternly rebuking these believers for their sluggishness. He soberly challenges them with the danger of apostasy, and he sincerely encourages them that they would have full assurance and confidence that because of God's faithfulness, because he indeed holds us fast, that we will reach that shore and inherit every one of those promises. So let's first look at a stern rebuke. In several resources, Pew and Barna survey results concerning biblical illiteracy in the United States appear. They report in one survey, just of the general population, that 12% thought Joan of Arc might be Noah's wife, Noah and the Ark. Another survey found that, that a number of uh, graduating uh, high school students, when asked about Sodom and Gomorrah, thought they were a married couple. And so we expect these odd results from those who may or may not be Christians that's out in the general population in our culture. But what about those who identify as Christians? What do these re results show about biblical literacy? 
Interestingly, one report found that, that only half adults identifying as Christians could name the four Gospels. Many could not name more than one or two of the 12 disciples or apostles. Most professing Christians, according to this survey, could not get through the list of the Ten Commandments, were unfamiliar with Abraham. They were unfamiliar with, with what Paul wrote in Romans and unclear about the meaning of justification. Eighty percent of professing evangelical Christians, according to these surveys, believe that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. Benjamin Franklin said that, an extra-biblical source. If Pew and Barna did a survey here at Covenant, what would they report on the state of biblical literacy or biblical illiteracy here? A stern rebuke is given in verse 11. About this, says the author, about this meaning the, the lesson on Jesus' priesthood after the order of Melchizedek in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, we have much to say. But he stops, he pauses, because he does not believe the believers to whom he is writing can handle that higher level of theological study. And it's because, he says, that you have become dull of hearing. It's interesting that the Greek word used, translated dull here, is the same word that's translated sluggish in chapter 6, verse 12. I think sluggish is a pretty uh, descriptive word of how we can become when it comes to the study of God's word and our pursuit of theological knowledge. He obviously knew the recipients of his letter, that they simply were not mature enough to handle the deeper things of God's Word. Maybe they thought, like many today, that theology is just a distraction. We just need to love Jesus and get along together. He gives this critique in verse 12. These believers should be teachers by now but they are actually in need of being taught the same basic lessons over and over again. And one of the things we learn is that these believers obviously were not new converts. They should have been teachers by now. Now listen, we can expect some person just coming to faith in Christ would not be able to give a robust definition of the doctrine of justification. There have been some men being examined for a presbytery that could not give a robust definition of the doctrine of justification. But yet these believers had been in the faith for some time and they should have been able to handle this teaching with regards to Jesus' priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And so the author stops because he knew if he kept going, they just simply would choke. 
They couldn't handle it. They couldn't swallow it. Well, what are these basic principles? Let's look at verse uh, 12, and then the basic principles in verse 12 are really spelled out in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. By basic or elementary principles, the author certainly does not mean these are unimportant, but these are foundational. These are necessary beliefs that every believer must hold. We find three couplets here with regards to this teaching. Primarily, it's the teaching on the doctrine of salvation. First, we read about the the first couplet, repentance from dead works and and faith in God, verse 1 of chapter 6. And I I believe this represents the the doctrines of concerning regeneration, saving faith, and justification. The meaning of the second couplet, instructions on washings and laying on of hands, is a bit more difficult to understand. But it's interesting that the, the Greek word used for washings is not the normal word used when describing the sacrament of baptism. And so it very well could represent ceremonial or ritual washings that were done as part of the, the, the natural course of life of, of the Jewish person. And then the laying on of hands, of course, signifies the coming of the Spirit. And Rick Phillips says this, that this couplet represents the empowerment for living the Christian life by the Holy Spirit, or rather, the doctrine of sanctification. So the first couplet, justification, we could say. The second couplet, sanctification. And then the third couplet that we find here in verses 1 through 3, resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And again, Rick Phillips is helpful when he suggests that we think about this as a doctrine of glorification. You know, the, the end times, when Christ comes back and consummates all things, the judgment takes place and the elect are brought in to the eternal state. You may remember last year I preached a sermon series on the order of salvation, really the doctrine of salvation, from election all the way to glorification. And then in 2005, I preached a series on the Apostles' Creed. These two series, the Apostles' Creed series as well as the Order of Salvation series, I think represents the minimal beliefs that every Christian should have in order to call him or herself a Christian. These are the basics, these are the elemental, these are the necessary, these are the foundational teachings of Scripture that we all must embrace and study and hear again. But here's the point of our author. In order to persevere in the Christian life, in order to have a fruitful and faithful Christian life, You must, yes, embrace these fundamentals with all of your might, but you must go on from there and dive deeply into the deep things of God in His Word. You must move on from milk to solid food. The author is saying, my beloved church, you should be able to handle my teaching on Melchizedek, but you can't. And he says, you need to go on to maturity. 
So look at verse 13. Those who remain on milk are unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. A Christian who is like an infant on milk does not even know the basics all that well. They need to be taught over and over again. They don't know God's word well enough to even declare it to someone else or apply it to their own lives. They lack discernment candidly. I believe this is one of the greatest problems in the church in America today. Too many church men and women are immature. They are stuck on milk and either unable or unwilling to move on to solid food. Too many Christians are unable to consistently live out of a biblical and world life view because they don't know the Bible. Too many Christians are unable to distinguish good from evil. They can't distinguish the evil of abortion and same-sex marriage from the good of the sanctity of life and the biblical teaching of marriage between one man and one woman. Verse 14 distinguishes the, the immature Christian, an infant on milk, with a mature Christian on solid food. Verse 14 says, the mature Christian is established in these, these elementary, basic, foundational principles. Established, know them well, can recite them to others, and are committed to living by them. And yet, they're able to also delve into the greater truths of Scripture, the greater doctrines of our faith. They, they have a well-informed Christian world and life view. They are able to discern good from evil according to God's Word. They are able to apply biblical principles to how they live, to, to live out of a robust biblical world and life view. That's the mature Christian. Unlike the immature who is unskilled in the word of righteousness, the mature is trained, the mature practices, the mature studies. The mature believer is growing and grasping the truths of Scripture, theology, and doctrine. They are growing in orthodoxy, truth. And they're also growing in living out that truth in everyday life, orthopraxis. Thus the author writes, the mature who feast on the solid food of Scripture have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The author acknowledging there's a big problem with those who are reading this letter. They're immature, so he gives a solution to maturity. We find it in verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's not saying ignore the elementary doctrines of Christ. No, he's saying know them, you're established in them, embrace them, uh, go back and review them. <laughs> but he's saying you need to move on to deeper Bible study. You need to move on in grasping greater theology. 
the author is saying, decide today to stop being sluggish and go on to maturity. We are committed to preaching and teaching the Bible here at Covenant in every area of our church and our church life. And I want to challenge all of us, including Derek and myself, to strive even more to be mature, to feast on the solid food of Scripture, to go, to go on, to grow on to maturity. Get involved in the Sunday school class. In worship today, actively engage the sermon. Don't shout out anything, but interact with the text. Don't do your shopping list for tomorrow. Attend a Bible study. Take an online course. And if you don't know what to do, talk to Derek, talk to me, and we'll, we'll guide you to begin that process of feasting on the solid food of Scripture. Together, let's, let's eat the meat of Scripture, and let's grow together to maturity. That's the challenge here for you and me. We need to hear this stern rebuke about spiritual immaturity to convict us of our sluggishness. That we might repent and to strive even more to go on to maturity. A sober challenge. You know, sometimes we just simply need to be jolted out of our sluggishness and our complacency. And to be challenged to begin taking the Christian life seriously. And the author does so in our text today. Verses 4 through 8, many, many see this as a proof text for the view that someone who is a believer can lose their salvation. To make it clear, we do not believe that. We believe in the perseverance of the saints, commonly known as once saved, always saved. The author's main point, however, in verses 4 through 8, is, is not to say, hey, the, the original recipients of my letter have fallen away. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying, and Scripture tells us they can't fall away, they will not fall away. But in verse 9, and, and he makes the case in verse 9, he says, yet in your case, meaning that the case I'm describing in verses 4 through 8 is not your case. You haven't fallen away, though some may. But I'm not saying you've fallen away. His point is to challenge them to get serious about living the Christian life because the danger of apostasy is real. The text describes someone who had the outward appearance of being a believer but had never really been united to Christ in saving faith. And thus, at some point, they fell away. Think about Jesus' parable of the four soils, the one seed in the four soils in Luke chapter 8. And specifically at soil 2 and soil 3. Soil 2 is that rocky soil, and the seed is broadcast. It falls on the rocky soil. It germinates but really can't take root because of the rockiness of the soil. Then there's a soil in the thorns and the thistles, and the seed may take root, but then it's choked out by the thorns and the thistle there. It, it, is, 
it doesn't produce a harvest. As soon as the heat comes, as soon as a lack of water comes, as soon as the persecution comes, as soon as, soon as some difficulty comes, that that's that whatever has germinated from that seed just dies out. It, in effect, falls away. And what's the difference? The difference is simply this. It was not prepared. It was not cultivated. So the first three soils of that parable is uncultivated soil, meaning unregenerate hearts. But then there's that fourth soil that's cultivated, that heart that is given life by the work of the Holy Spirit that takes the seed and produces a harvest. Uh, this, this point is made also by the author in our text today, verses 7 through 8, where he gives this example of land that has become drunk with rain. And because it was cultivated, it was a blessing from God to those for whom it was cultivated. But he says, if it has thorns and thistles, it is useless that is, if it's not cultivated and thorns and thistles grow, it's useless and will be burned. That describes the apostate person. Light soils two and three in the, the parable. And so let's look at this more closely. Thus, a, a person here in verses four through eight may benefit from the blessings of church membership. Verses four through five. They, they profit from the ministry of the word. They participate even in coming to the Lord's table. They appear to be filled with the Spirit, or at least they appear to have benefited from a general operation of the Spirit. But at some point, maybe it's persecution at work, maybe it's this good old-timey complacency, sluggishness on steroids, maybe it's running after worldly pursuits. Maybe it's realizing that, man, this Christian life is too hard for me. I am out of it. And they fall away. They abandon Christ. They apostatize. They are like that rocky soil. They are like that thistle thorn infested soil. They are like that soil in the example in verses 7 through 8 that is thorn and thistle ridden and destined for destruction. We likely know people who have been raised in the church and they abandon the church and abandon Christ. We may know people who as adults were converted. They come in the church, they, it's like they're on fire for the Lord, then as quickly as they burn, they burn out and they abandon the church and they abandon Christ. Sad, regrettable, heartbreaking. And all of us need to hear the lesson of this text. Apostasy is a real danger. Remember to whom this letter, this letter was originally written. Jewish Christians being persecuted, pressured to do exactly what the writer describes in verses 4 through 8, to apostatize, to abandon Christ. And the writer has already given an example of apostasy. If you want to know what apostasy, apostasy looks like, 
then recall in chapter 3 the, the author's discussion on the Exodus generation who, all, who failed and did not inherit the promised land because their hearts were hardened. They rebelled in their heart. They apostatized. And some commentators actually believe that the description of the apostate person in verses 4 through 5 is pointing to that generation who outwardly looked like they were the people of God. They were going to inherit the promises, but in the end, they abandoned God because of hard hearts. And so the author gives this sober challenge, this jolt to those believers under threat of persecution to shake them out of their sluggishness that they would not abandon and forsake Christ and revert again to Judaism, that they would get their act together and they would begin seeking to mature by moving from milk to the solid food of Scripture so they might have discernment that they would be faithful as Christians. And this sober challenge is for you and me today. I know someone that is like the person described in verses 4 through 9. For such a person, the author declares, verse 4, it is impossible for one who has appeared to be a Christian and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Rick Phillips says this in his commentary about this verse. To reject Christ after having come to knowledge of the gospel is to say, as the Pharisees did, that he should be put away, that is, Christ should be put away, that he, that is Christ, is guilty as charged, a threat, an enemy worthy of death. To repudiate Christ is, in effect, to take up hammer and nails and beat them into his hands and feet, to make common cause of those who crucified him, to mock him like the soldiers who laughed and sneered. He saved others. He cannot save himself. What a vivid description of the apostate person and why they can't be restored. It's a sobering reality, isn't it? And so are we to take from this text then that the person that I know who has repudiated Christ, who has rejected Christ, has no hope of ever being brought to true faith? And I would say three things about this, that it is impossible for such a person to restore him or herself, that it is impossible for me or anyone else to restore them and to bring them to repentance. They can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. But God can. 
Notice the text. In verse 4, it starts out that, that it is impossible for such a person like is described. And then in verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them. We can't do it. But God can. If a person that appears from our perspective to be hardened in apostasy, if that person is elect, God will bring them to repentance and he will restore them to himself. Apostasy is real. God means business with hard-hearted apostates. He demonstrated that. In the wilderness, with that Exodus generation, they all died out. They did not inherit the promise. But God's mercy is always more. And so for the person that I know, I rest in the hope that one day, because of this person being an elect person, elected by God, that God might, and if they are elect, He will, Cultivate their hard heart. Prepare it to receive the seed of the gospel and be brought into the kingdom, a harvest of righteousness. This is a hard passage, and we should view it as a hard passage that points out a real danger, the danger of apostasy. It's a sobering passage. It's a sobering challenge, and it should jolt us into questioning our own maturity level or immaturity level, our own sluggishness, that we might go on to maturity. But it's also a passage that reminds us of the greatness of God's mercy and grace. He is able to bring to repentance the hardest-hearted apostate and restore them to himself. We need the challenge of the danger of apostasy to shake and jolt us out of our sluggishness that we would get serious about living the Christian life to persevere. And especially for our young people today, don't wait to get serious about living the Christian life. And to our middle-aged people today, don't wait to get serious about living the Christian life, and to our older folks today, don't wait to get serious about living the Christian life. Hear this rebuke, hear this challenge, and get busy going on to maturity. But there's one last thing, a sincere encouragement. Uh, Renee uses positive reinforcement in the kindergarten classroom. When your students exhibit appropriate behavior, like not talking when someone else is talking, she might say something like, like this, thank you for not talking when others talk. Isn't it inconsiderate when someone is talking and then you talk over them? But thank you for not doing that. Good job. So positive reinforcement really works for kindergartners. It works with husbands, too. And it works even with adults. And how do we know that? Because it worked 
And it was used in verses 9 through 12 by the author of Hebrews. Renee didn't come up with positive reinforcement. We find it right here in our text today. Though he has spoken with a stern rebuke and a sober challenge, he affirms his love for them. Look at, at verses 9 uh, through 12. In verse 9, he affirms his love for them. He says and assures them that he doesn't believe that they have fallen away and that they should have confidence and full assurance of better things pertaining to salvation. Then in verse 10, he praises them for continuing the work and love of the Lord shown to the saints and assures them that God is not going to overlook their service in his name. And so for, for, for what purpose has, has he rebuked and challenged these, these believers? It's that they might have full assurance of their salvation, that they would persevere, that they would know that they will inherit the promises. In verses 11 through 12, he, he sets before them his desires that they not, not remain as, as immature believers, infants satisfied with milk, that they would cast off that sluggishness, take that bottle and throw it away and grab the meat of Scripture and begin feasting on the deep things of God to grow to maturity. To eat the solid food of God's word, doctrine, and theology. And it's interesting that he calls them that, that, that one of the ways that you can change and move from immaturity to maturity is to look at those who have done the very same thing and have already run the course and inherited the, who have persevered and have inherited the, pro, the, the promises of God. And the chief example that he uses is Abraham. Verses 13 through 20. That we'll not cover today, but we'll take a break of about six weeks from Hebrews, and then we'll come back to this example of someone who ran the race well. Should be an example for us all. But ultimately, he he gives us assurance that indeed that they will inherit the promises of God. Why? Because God is faithful, and He will ensure that they persevere. The opening illustration about Susie Maroney, who set the record for that 110-mile swim from Cuba to Florida, she persevered. She swam like crazy. But she swam in a shark-protected cage. And I want us to think about the fact that she was swimming, she persevered in swimming, at the whole time, there was this cage that was protecting her and to ensure that she would reach the shore and inherit the prize. And brothers and sisters, that's God. We persevere. We need to swim like crazy. <laughs> but even as we do that, we swim in Him. He surrounds us with His grace. He surrounds us with His mercy. He surrounds us with His love. He surrounds us with His power. He ensures that we reach the shore and inherit the promises. We persevere in a cage. 
And that cage is a faithful God who perseveres us. Bruce read from Jeremiah 32, 40 through 41. Let me just repeat a couple of verses. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. That they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. They will reach the shore. They will inherit the promises. And that's what God is doing in our lives today. As we persevere, he is faithfully working, ensuring that we reach the shore and inherit the promises. We need to hear this stern rebuke about spiritual immaturity to convict us of our sluggishness, that we might repent and strive more and more to go on to maturity. We, we need to hear this challenge of the, of the real danger of apostasy to jolt us, to shake us up a little bit, that we might be shaken out of our sluggishness and get serious about living the Christian life and persevering by faith. And we need to hear this encouragement of God's faithfulness that ensures that we will reach the shore and inherit the promises. Before the sermon we sang, He will hold me fast. And that is exactly what he will do. Our hope in inheriting the promises is, founding on, is founded on God's faithfulness in ensuring that we persevere. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your work of grace, to persevere your people. Father, we pray that you would bless us Enable us to strive to maturity. Father, enable us to rest and trust in you, our faithful God, who is the ultimate reason that we will reach the shore and inherit the promises. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.